Good evening, little masters, and welcome once again to the Prancing Pony Podcast, where the good stuff is good enough for the halls of the Elven King. West Hall, my friends. I'm Sean Marchese, the real-life Lord of the Mark. And as always, I'm joined by the Man of the West, the Aragorn to my Amer, Alan Sisto. Thanks, Sean. You know, it was nice being Tolkis for a while. Uh, less yeah. said about Legolas, though, the better. But I'm glad to be back <laughs> as the, the mysterious vagabond with the hair. It's the hair. It's all the hair, Alan. It's all the... Sorry. I don't have any hair left, Sean. But I do like being the mysterious vagabond because I've got that rascally look going on. Yes, you do. Unfortunately, I'm a little shorter, but that's all right. Um, Well, folks, since the moon (laughs) recently showed up, we are going to make one small step for man, one giant leap for mankind, because mankind is finally showing up. The second children of Iluvatar are finally awakening in Chapter 12 of Men. Very well done. (laughs) <laughs> have you ever have you ever noticed this is actually the shortest chapter title in the whole Silmarillion? It's five letters in a space. <laughs> wow, you're not kidding. That might actually make it the shortest chapter title in uh, in the Legendarium. Probably and there are other yeah. ones that are one word, like Lothlorien, or uh, yeah. a couple others. But I don't think five characters plus a space. He, he wasn't the kind for like really short chapter names like war or <laughs> death. <laughs> No, not really. And of course, it, it you know turns out to be one Sam. of the shortest. Sam. There would have been a chapter <laughs> name for you. Probably about the only way it can get shorter. Just yeah. Sam. Good stuff. Man. Well, it, fortunately, it's also one of the shortest chapters in length too. That's. I mean, that is true. I'm I'm, th- I'm sitting here thinking, how are we going to get a whole you know hour and a half out of this? But you know, you know us. I'm sure. I'm sure we'll still find a way, right? The prancing pony podcast method. The po- prancing pony podcast way. <laughs> Well, if there's one thing we do well, it is find a way to say way too much. That is very um, true. But first, before we dig into the chapter, does old Barnabin have anything in his bag for us tonight? He does, actually, Alan. We've got a question from our old friend Maya in Michigan. Okay. And uh, I want your take on this one, uh, so I'm going to let you answer it first, but I also mm. have some thoughts. So mm-hmm. I'll, I'll pitch it to you, and then uh, and then you can hand it back. Sounds good. So Maya wrote in saying, Tolkien himself described the Ainur as angelic beings. Judeo-Christian mythology portrays angels as warriors of God. Do you think the Ainur of Tolkien's universe could be seen meeting this description? Certainly, I feel Aloran could offer his involvement, could over his involvement in the Third Age. I feel the other Ainur do as well. Additionally, Judeo-Christian mythology describes seven ruling angels. This is interesting. Seven ruling angels known as archangels that are more powerful than the others. Uh, Lucifer is the seventh archangel, much like Morgoth was Avala. Hmm. Basically, I'm asking two things. Do you feel Tolkien's Ainur live up to the warriors of God status of their biblical counterparts? Uh, and second, if the Maiar are the angels of Tolkien's world, could the Valar be equivalent to the archangels? Hmm. Well, those are definitely interesting questions, Maya. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, there's no doubt the Ainur have some parallels with um, the Judeo-Christian tradition of, of angelic beings. Uh, yeah, in, that, in that they are created beings. They are mm-hmm. beings that don't have a, a physical um, or they don't have to have a physical presence. Um, mm-hmm. You know, they, they clothe themselves, but they don't have physical bodies. Mm-hmm. But I'm not sure I'd go so far as to say that angels are portrayed in the, tra- in the Judeo-Christian tradition as warriors of God. I mean, let me back that up. Don't get me wrong. They are portrayed as that from time to time. But okay. when I think of angels in, in the Bible— uh, the roles they fill are a lot broader. 
Um, but first, you got to look at the word itself. Angels, uh, that comes from the Greek uh, angelos, which means messenger. Mm-hmm. Right. And that's really the primary task of, of angels in the Bible. Um, I'm thinking of Gabriel showing up to Joseph and telling him, hey, your fiance is pregnant, but don't worry, nobody did anything, it's God, <laughs> you know, and telling mm-hmm. him basically mm-hmm. stick right. around. Uh, there are a lot of other examples of that. Um, we also see them uh, providing protection. I think uh, an angel is there to protect Daniel in the lion's den, for instance, or um, okay. or the Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the uh, fiery furnace. Uh, again, just, mm-hmm. you know, mm-hmm. uh, maybe getting people out of danger. Um, some of the apostles were in jail at one point, and there was an earthquake, and an angel says, get out. <laughs> you know, okay. Basically pointing out the obvious. There's the exit. God made it. Go. So, so they run all sorts they of They do all errands, sorts of jobs. Send right. all yeah. sorts of mess- messages. They do what God needs done. Um, mm-hmm. But there are times when they're warriors uh, leading in a battle. Uh, most of the time when that happens, it seems to be the archangel Michael. That brings me up to that archangel thing, but we'll get to that again in a second. And, of course, there's also the, the fallen angels. You know, you mentioned mm-hmm. Morgoth, and certainly, you know, Melkor has those parallels with Lucifer. That's probably the sure, strongest yeah. parallel in Chapter 1, or in the Ainulindale, I should say. Yeah, I think um, I think so, probably probably more so than any of the— More so than the Any of the, 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 the good, good Valar, ones. the good yeah. Ainur, yeah. Absolutely. I mean, mm-hmm. it, there's so many parallels with Lucifer in terms of wanting to usurp uh, Iluvatar's place and mm-hmm. pride and bringing down a bunch of angels with him, that kind of thing. So certainly the Balrogs and, and maybe Ungoliant uh, would parallel those those angels that fell with Lucifer just as they fell with Morgoth. But the, the point is that I'm not sure I can buy into the premise that the warriors of God status of the biblical angels is something that we have to use to compare with the Ainur because the angels' roles were larger. And okay. given yeah. that, I don't think that the Ainur do compare very well because they don't do those jobs for the most part. They don't go into Middle Earth and get people out of danger or – Go bring food to people, uh, or protect them in in times of trouble. Um, they just they don't, don't they don't intervene very much. No. Sounds like yeah yeah. I mean no. that's true. They really don't. If you look at the legendarium, they don't. And Iluvatar doesn't even use them to go and accomplish things in the individual lives of of people in Middle Earth. Mm-hmm. He uses them to accomplish the shaping of the world, mm-hmm. um, which is actually not a way that God used the angels in the okay, Judeo-Christian yeah. tradition, right? I mean he finished the world himself and the angels had right. nothing to do with the creation. So And that's Tolkien talked about that, that uh the demiurgical, I think, was right, the word that Tolkien right. used sometime. Yeah, that's sort of actually doing the work of shaping the world, right? Yeah. They really are more like the Greek pantheon or you mm-hmm, know and, and mm-hmm. except that they are created beings themselves. That was really mm-hmm. important to Tolkien because as we know he had to create something that was consistent with his own beliefs. Right. That could, as he said to Bilton Waldman uh, be believed by somebody who believed in the Trinity. Right. Um, but as for the division between Maiar Valar and angels, archangels, that one's even a little bit tougher. Um, I have to admit, I wasn't really up to speed on this, but uh, coming from a Protestant tradition myself, the, I'm only aware of one angel named in the Bible as an archangel, and that's Michael. Um, but I do okay. understand that the, the Roman Catholic Church's view is that there are three um, and, of course, that's the, the view that Tolkien would have been familiar with. Uh, my understanding is the whole seven angels, seven archangels, is very um, uh, more comparable to the Eastern Orthodox tradition. Uh, I don't okay. know about Judaism. Judaism may uh, have that as, as a tradition as well. I don't know, so I can't speak to that. But in terms of the Christian tradition, um, I don't know where the seven comes from, and, and certainly uh, Lucifer wouldn't have been named as <clears throat> as one of them. 
But um, I, I just don't know about that. But I think mm-hmm. the thing here is the angels are nowhere near as powerful as the Valar. Uh, nothing mm-hmm. in the Judeo-Christian tradition would lead you to think that angels could tear up continents. Oh, there goes Beleriand. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, that's, right, right, right. <laughs> lifting mountains and, and right. dragging Picking islands up across islands the water. Yeah, up, yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's something that that is beyond the scope of what a, a an angel in the Judeo-Christian tradition would do. So. I don't know that I could make a comparison to that degree. It's interesting. It's certainly interesting to talk about. And uh, mm-hmm. um, describing them as angelic beings is appropriate in the sense that they are subservient to God and that they mm-hmm. are second tier. They're created even though they're eternal. They have a beginning uh, and they were not of the same material as God or in this mm-hmm. case as Iluvatar. That's probably about the only similarity that I can come up with. Yeah. Yeah, but no, you that's, got some that's stuff on this, right? Really, yeah, I, well, I do, but that that was really interesting. I appreciate you you walking oh, through that because well, no I'm, I'm not as not as familiar with a lot of that stuff. Um, and I may not be too. I mean, in fairness, I don't know much about, let's say, the Orthodox traditions or, or even mm-hmm. um, maybe the, the Judaism Jewish traditions. The Jewish, yeah, right, the yeah. Jewish traditions as much. I'm mm-hmm. familiar with it, but only vaguely. So when you get into something this specific, I, I have to tell you, I just don't know. I just know the Protestant tradition and the and to some extent the Roman Catholic tradition. Yeah, and I got to say, once upon a time, I might have been able to answer for the Roman Catholic <laughs> tradition, but I, I, it's been a long time since those ta- those teachings. So I'm you're, you you're on your own, man. Yeah, <laughs> you have to go to confession about that, right? Uh, yeah, but uh, I'm, but no, man, that was I think that's really really an interesting walkthrough of it. Hmm. I mean, I certainly think when Tolkien described them as angels, he fully knew all the connotations oh, that yeah. that word that that word had and Absolutely. being the philologist he was i i mean and having a, a bit of a background in ancient greek myself the first thing i went to was angelos just like you right. did you know yeah. the the meaning of messenger yeah. and you know i know that the etymology of a word doesn't always dictate what it means today but True. certainly tolkien would have been thinking about that as much as he was thinking about all the other stuff he talked about so yeah. i definitely think that um, he he must have had, in some sense, this idea of messengers. Um, yeah. But as you say, I think you say the role is is really much larger than that, and um, and they not only uh, send messages, um, or I don't know. I mean, they they do occasionally uh, mediate in terms of the knowledge and things like that that you know right. Manwe and Ulmo and so forth kind of provide to the children of Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. Um, but then well, they also have the that. Elves. I mean, you know. Right. Right. But yeah. then they also. They're they're actually the ones who do the work. They're sort of the the hands right. that actually shape the earth. Um, that again, that sort of demiurgical role. Yeah, they step um, into the into the shoes of God in in many ways. Um, yeah, yeah. But so uh, yeah, I mean, I think you I think you're spot on. I think you you really raise some interesting points. The only other thing I would add to it is um, uh, this is the second question I think in um, in a couple of episodes where. We've had a question about sort of the inspirations, you know, mm-hmm. uh, relationships to other mythologies. Right. And yeah, um, um, Bernat's questions about, um, uh, about Valhalla and, Val- yeah. um, and uh, Grimm's fairy tales and things like that. Exactly. And um, now we're recording this before that episode has aired. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, so I, I know Maya wouldn't have heard this yet. But um, since we've had two of these in a row, I, I actually will point out that just like we said last time, I think it's the differences yeah. between Ainur and you know Judeo-Christian angels that makes them interesting. That's true. And and when I saw Maya say this thing about warriors of God, the first thing I thought of was a little thought exercise, mm-hmm. um, just thinking about the degree to which they actually do fight right. uh, wars on behalf of God or Eru uh, or Illuminati. Right. 
Yeah. And so I actually started looking. And so let's take a little quick walk through the major powers, excuse me, the major wars that ended each age of Middle Earth history, right? Okay. Uh, so the first one is the War of the Powers. That's when the Valar you know, raised a Tumno. They, you know, kicked Melkor out right. to make way for the elves, right? Dragged him uh, in the, chains, but but Angmar, right. yeah, yeah. Right. The major combatants in that war were the Valar and Melkor. Yeah. Uh, we're yeah. not even told that the Maiar were there. They probably no. were, but we're not well, even yeah. mentioned. I mean, even one mentioned. would imagine one would bring Aonwe with you since he's right, know, since skilled he's the in arms. warrior with arms, yeah. <laughs> So the War of the Powers was just all Ainur fighting each other. Okay. Then you get to the War of Wrath, which is at the end of the First Age. Now, we haven't gotten to that yet. No. But spoiler alert. Spoiler alert. It's going to be uh, – there's actually going to be Valar and Maiar. Yes, there And will. Vanyar. And That's Vanyar, right. The, the, the fair elves. Come. Mm-hmm. Coming out of the West to bail out the elves, men, and dwarves of Middle-earth. So it starts as a War of Middle-earth, and then the, the angelic beings and the Vanyar come and bail them out. Right. Um, then you got the War of the Last Alliance. That's the end of the Second Age. Right. Now, now who fights that one? It's elves and oh, men. Man. And dwarves. And, uh, and dwarves, some of Durin's dwarves, right? And I think right. there are also some of the uh, some of the wood elves of Lothlorien. Right. But no Einar. No Einar fighting that right. battle. No Einar at all. No no Maiar, no Valar, nobody. Right. And, I mean, we're, we're to believe that Gilgalad was sort of the main commander with right. Elendil, uh, you know, sort of right by his side. Um but it's all elves and men and dwarves. You're right. And then when you get They're to the War of the Ring, right. And then you get to the War of the Ring, what do we see? Oh, it's, it's mostly men. Yeah. Um, you know, there's some skirmishes, uh, some elf skirmishes. There's some sure. dwarf skirmishes in Erebor. Yeah, there's fighting up, uh, up in Dale and all that, right. Yeah. Stuff that you really don't get unless you read the appendices. Mm-hmm. Uh, but where are the Maiar in the War of the Ring? Yeah, other than Gandalf. There's Gandalf. There's Sauron. Well, Saruman. obvious. That's true. Yeah. <laughs> Sauron. And so they're wouldn't we I mean, call Gandalf, him a warrior of God in that scenario, though? No, exactly right. I mean, Gandalf is the only one who's really on the good side That's there. That's true. He's, he's, the, he's the only one who's following orders from God, right? Uh, and and, from the and and fighting. I mean, Radagast, you know. Well, that's true. Yeah, would have been doing the right thing, but probably not taking part in the combat. <laughs> right. Right. Exactly. Radagast and Gandalf are not fighting at all, which I guess is sort of my point. They're sort of Radagast isn't even really that involved. Gandalf right. is at least an advisor. Um, Sort of a commander in a way, but mm-hmm. really more oh, of yeah. an advisory commander, leaving leaving men to do the actual commanding. That's true. So, I, so I guess more my so, point much more so in the books than he does in the movies. In the movies, he takes yeah. a much more active role. So, if that's yeah. the yeah. thing you're thinking about, is him fighting as much as he did. When, I, there were some moments, though, didn't he? I mean, he had the confrontation with a witch king. He did, uh, yeah. But that ended when the witch king took off after hearing the uh, the cock crow and the Rohirrim arrive. The, the Rohirrim coming, so, yeah. Yeah, I don't know. There was there there wasn't certainly wasn't the level of yeah. combat that was involved no. in uh, in the films in the movies. Yeah, exactly. And so my my point in all this is to show that uh, over the course of Middle Earth history, and we're going to talk about this later in the episode too, but over the course of history, the Ainur take less and less of a role in doing anything really. Um, and, <laughs> That's I, true. and I think that includes being warriors for good, you know? Yeah. Um, and so I, I think that to me is sort of the most interesting thing about this comparison to warriors of God or, you know, biblical angels or whatever is, yeah. um, you really do see the Ainur just sort of starting out being very, very powerful, very influential and sort of getting less and less so over time. And I think that is a key difference between, say, Tolkien's vision of what an angelic being or an Ainu would be mm-hmm. versus probably the Judeo-Christian 
you know, framework that he would have grown up with. Well, not as much difference as I would have thought, actually, because as you point that out, I, I start to think about, uh, you know, how much more active we see the angels in the Old Testament in terms of their mm-hmm. interventions and things. Whereas by the time of the New Testament, there are fewer examples, it seems, and more oh, more, yeah. more messengery type stuff. Um, that's a good point, yeah. As opposed to, you know, the big battles, with the exception of Revelation, which is, of course, prophetic and talking right, about future right. war. Uh, right. But, but yeah, and that would be a difference because there, the Ainur, you know, if we want to talk about the Judeo-Christian tradition of angels being like the Ainur, they're going to be very active in the last battle. Whereas, yeah. uh, you know, like you point out here, uh, it's it's all on men by the end. Right, right. So, interesting. Well, that will definitely be an interesting segue into our discussion because uh, we'll talk a little bit about that rise of men, won't we? Yes, we will. But before we do, Mm -hmm. since we're talking about men tonight, I would like to spend a few more minutes on something else. I want to spend a few minutes on a case of boys will be boys. Uh Uh-oh. Does that mean it's time for another Tolkien fun fact? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, you're right there with the music. Very well done. Uh, Yes, it does. We have a new... Tolkien fun fact for you folks tonight, and I'm going to go ahead and please do talk, by all start means. talking about it to you. So today's Tolkien fun fact comes to us again from Carpenter's biography. That's a great course, source for, for these things. Where a lot of these are, and I have to give a special shout out to our friend Alan R. Uh, in the UK, um, the other half re- of the Argonath. <laughs> yes, Sorry, the other you... half of the Alan Argonath. We, yes, we are the Alan Argonath. <laughs> yeah, we've got uh, almost matching Alans. Only their accents are different. Oh, quite. Uh, <laughs> but uh, he actually reminded me of this one. I had completely forgotten about it. And mm-hmm. uh, I saw him mention it, and I, and I just reached out. I was like, where is that story again? He's like, uh, it's in Carpenter's biography. I'm like, of oh. Of course it is. Yeah, of course it is. <laughs> but um, so this is a story about uh, young Tolkien's undergraduate days at Oxford. And uh, a little evening he spent um, with a little – Collegiate entertainment, let's say. <laughs> <laughs> there were a few of those, weren't there? <laughs> there were a few of those. Um, yeah, he definitely was not the, uh, the the stodgy old Oxford Don in his youth. He was a bit of a... He, he was <laughs> troublemaker. A bit of a troublemaker. So one night actually culminated in young Ronald and his friends stealing a bus. <laughs> and I'm going to read a little bit from Carpenter's biography here. Okay. And, and this is Tolkien's own account. Okay. At ten to nine, we heard a distant roar of voices and knew that there was something on foot, so we dashed out of college and were in the thick of fun for two hours. We ragged the town and the police and the proctors all together for about an hour. Jeffrey and I captured a bus and drove captured. it up to Corn Market. We didn't captured. steal one, we captured it. Makes it, sound very, makes it sound very heroic, like you dragged the, <laughs> like you dragged the evil fallen bus away in chains. Uh, <laughs> captured a bus and drove it up to Corn Market, making various unearthly noises, followed by a mad crowd of mingled varsity and townies. It was chock full of undergrads before it reached the Carfax. Oh, my goodness. There I, there I addressed a few stirring words to a huge mob before descending and removing to the Maggers Memugger, or the Martyr's Memorial, where I addressed the crowd again. There were no disciplinary consequences of all this. Oh, my goodness. He got away with it. <laughs> he got away with it. That yeah. rocks. I could never have gotten away with that in college. Yeah. No, no, certainly not. But man, I, mean, I had my fun. Don't get me wrong. I've done some pretty crazy things. Stealing I, a bus, could, not one of them. Stealing a bus is probably farther than I, yeah, I, than I would have ever gone. Maybe even in high school, I don't think I would have stolen a bus. <laughs> but uh, 
I, I don't know. It's such a it's such a vivid account. I've never oh, actually it? I've never been to Oxford. So, you know, he's talking about some places I had to look up. Yeah, uh, I don't so know this, what. Yeah, so he, he talks about this corn market. And I think corn market is sort of like the shopping district of Oxford. So it was a pretty okay. busy place that they took this <laughs> stolen bus to. Well, at, at um, late at night, though, like 11 o'clock at night. Well, that's probably true. Yeah, maybe in the in the early uh, early part of part of the twentieth century, maybe it wouldn't have been that crowded. Um, <laughs> but uh, the Carfax that he's talking about, that, that where he kind of went to and sort of gave this uh, this uh, speech, you're going to have uh, to clear that, that one up because all I can think of is that Carfax that we that, see on the TV. Right, that's all I was thinking of too. That commercial, which some of our international listeners so may not be horribly annoying. With. Yeah. But the Carfax is actually a tower at uh, a major intersection sort of in this district. And oh, okay. it's a uh, it's this tower is all that's left of a 12th century church. Oh, wow. Cool. So yeah, we don't have anything place. that old here. <laughs> it's a perfect. True. No, we don't. Perfect place for Tolkien to give a speech. Oh, you know, absolutely. Some He'd be medieval sounding relic. Like a, yeah. <laughs> yeah. A medieval relic but, giving a speech in a medieval relic. Right. And I want to know what he said. I mean, what I do, you do think? too. That's what I'm thinking. What, what did he say to the mob? <laughs> <laughs> right. This this mob of undergrads and townees. So, you know, they oh, one man. of the things they talk about in Oxford is like there's this big division between the town, town or, you know, gown. The, the, yeah. the townies and the gown, the people that are there to go to school. Yeah. I mean, him bringing them together like this, it's just I mean, it's like the last alliance. It's the last <laughs> alliance of town and gown. Like he's rallying them for he might have rallied them for a war on Sauron or a war, a on, war on Saruman or on Saruman. Yeah. <laughs> Very, or on uh, some, or on some dean who had wronged him, go steal the mascot of a rival school, or oh, something that's like awesome. That. Well, you know, I just hope he didn't do this while dressed as a polar bear and wielding an axe. That might have been a little too much at the same time. <laughs> a little too much. <laughs> that might have gotten probably, some disciplinary results. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure. He, he probably would have oh, lost man. the townies if he had started giving that speech in, in Icelandic. In Icelandic. <laughs> Like he used to yeah, do anyway. with uh, with uh, Beowulf when he would yeah, know, do yeah. the first fifty lines, even lose students at that point. But yeah, yeah, my goodness. Well, but anyway, that's classic stuff. And <laughs> just a reminder that he was not some sort of stodgy old busybody, but a, uh, no. a tremendously witty and funny guy who who loved life. And uh, I just what? A, <laughs> yeah, I'm not I sure I can admire him for Grand Theft Auto. <laughs> No, no. But I try. I'm. I no. think I can. <laughs> that's pretty cool. I, we captured it. I'm, I have it's, to remember that next time I take something that's yeah. not mine. Yeah. Well, I didn't steal it. I captured it. When, now, now that I'm thinking about it again, all I can think of is Mr. Toad. Yeah. Stealing a car <laughs> and going on his wild ride. Well, on that wonderful note, I think we probably <laughs> should move on to our discussion. Probably so. Here's how we turn a, a, a three-page chapter into a two-hour episode. We spend 20 <laughs> right, exactly. minutes talking yes. about something else. Yeah. Oh, man. So, so we should probably get on with it. Let's do that. We'll, we'll start. Uh, I'll read those first couple paragraphs, and we'll talk a little bit about the Valar and uh, this interesting change in the measurement of time. All right. Let's do it. The Valar sat now behind their mountains at peace, and, having given light to Middle-earth, they left it for long untended, and the lordship of Morgoth was uncontested, save by the Valar of the Noldor. Most in mind, Ulmo kept the exiles, who gathered news of the earth through all the waters. From this time forth were reckoned the years of the sun. Swifter and briefer are they than the long years of the trees in Valinor. In that time, the air of Middle-earth became heavy with the breath of growth and mortality, and the changing and aging of all things was hastened exceedingly. 
life teemed upon the soil and in the waters in the second spring of Arda. And the Eldar increased, and beneath the new sun, Beleriand grew green and fair. Beautiful stuff. Though I have to say that last line, <laughs> the new sun, I because he also uses the word green, it keeps making me think about the green sun. The green sun. That he talked yeah. about in On Fairy From Stories. On Fairy Stories, yeah. <laughs> I know that that's just me transposing the words, but I couldn't get that out of my head. And I almost read it. And beneath the green oh, sun, Beleriand grew the, new and the fair. The green sun, Beleriand grew new and fair. <laughs> Uh, doesn't quite read as, as well that way, but anyway, no. I just couldn't help but think about that. Fascinating stuff here. Uh, there, once again, this is kind of like the bliss of of, of the Valar when they were uh, in the, you know, in the the light of the trees and they're Party just, time for the Valar. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Just they're just hanging out. It's like, hey, we're we're taking a couple of days off. We're just yeah, we're taking a break. And and to be fair, I mean, you know, they've just created the sun and moon. That so is true. That's, that's a big deal. That is a but, big big deal. You're right. But. But Morgoth is still out there, and you yeah. know it's it's not this this new light is not completely no. dealing with the problem. It's we'll, checking. We'll see. His, it does. Yeah, it checks it pretty yeah. well. But you're right. It's yeah. um, you know he's still kind of in control to some extent. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, I thought it was interesting that we see the valor of the Noldor. This may be the first time we we see the Noldor being described as valorous as, as yeah. opposed to. Uh, you know, what, just pitching a fit. Just pitching a fit. <laughs> Feanor pitching a fit and then... Seriously. Oh, here I go. Here I go blaming Feanor for everything again. <laughs> you know, I'm sorry. It is what it is. <laughs> the Noldor are back in Middle-earth because of Feanor. <laughs> he throws a fit and his family all says, yeah, we'll go too. <laughs> yeah, I know. We got, nothing, we got nothing better to do than cross the grinding oh, ice. Exactly. And sure, while we're at it, we'll, you know, we'll kill some Teleria, you know, yeah, yeah. burn some ships. But anyway. it, but it is true. I mean, it, yeah, he he mentions this valor of the Noldor, which we have not seen at all yet. No. Um, I mean, and uh, sp- specifically we'll in the context that. of yeah. valor of the Noldor in Middle Earth fighting Morgoth, exactly. we've not seen any of that. Right. Yet, exactly. Which, you know, we're about to. But in fairness, we need to to point out that we have seen some valor of the Noldor. Uh, sure. Those that crossed yeah. the Helcaraxi. Yeah. Those that crossed the the Grinding Eye certainly did so with valor. Yeah. Yeah, and um, Fingolfin has generally been pretty valorous. Well, right. I think he's even described as as being the most valorous. Uh, probably, yeah. You know, <laughs> probably when we is. talked about the brothers, right? You know the yeah, yeah. Which one was you know uh, Finarfin was the wisest and was the, the wise one? Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. I wondered. I mean, I wondered if this was just a little uh, idiosyncrasy of the way the work was compiled, because um, you know, mm. I mean, I know that oh, because the Silmarillion the wasn't. Yeah, I, I mean, because I know the Silmarillion was sort of compiled from different. I right. don't know how much uh, you know this part of it was really completed hmm. and put in order and everything. And I just wondered if maybe there was. Um, I don't know that we'll ever yeah. have an answer to that question. No, but I don't that know was if we will. I don't remember you know, reading anything in history that was that would address that. That was sometimes though we see this sort of back and forth thing. Actually, we see a lot of this back and forth thing. Um, you know, in even in Lord of the Rings, there's a little bit of this where you know when we were following. You know, Mary and Pippin, for instance, he'll mm-hmm. reference something that Frodo and Sam are doing. Oh, that's except true. Except we yeah. haven't read it yet. We uh, haven't read it yet. Yeah, that's a good point. You know, like the moon. There was uh, Frodo looking out on the moon, and and it was the same moon that Mary and Pippin. You know, I can't remember yeah. the moment. It was in the window on the west. But there's that, and then we get a lot of that here in in Middle or in uh, the Silmarillion, uh, with just in the last chapter, even when we go back to the um, the Sindar. And how that's a good point. Yeah, we're kind of seeing ahead. I think it's just because it's written as a history book, and so yeah. it's kind of assumed that the reader would have a 
would have some sort of knowledge of, this, right. of the big events of history. Yeah. 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 I don't know. It's interesting, good but point. that's a, that yeah. is a good point. I love the, the reference to Ulmo. Um, yeah. You know, it, it really made me think, I know we've talked a lot of, uh, not a lot, but a couple of times about Ulmo kind of being this rebel, um, mm-hmm. which reminded me of that line in Unfinished Tales. And we've referenced this a couple of times, right. but we've never read it. I'm going to actually, I pulled the text for this tonight because I think it's, uh, I think it's relevant to what we're looking at. Cool. Especially yeah, because it's it. of men, right? He's talking to men. Right. In speaking to Tour, Ulmo says, Therefore, though in the days of this darkness I seem to oppose the will of my brethren, the lords of the West, that is my part among them, to which I was appointed ere the making of the world. So even before the world was made, his role, he knew that his role was going to be to kind of keep an eye out. To, to be this... Um... Right, to not be a, the one that kind of goes almost against the will of Manway, not yeah, Iluvatar, yeah. and that's the key because he's doing what Iluvatar intended him to do. Right, he's right. just not doing what Manway intended him to do. Right, so yep. it's just interesting, and it makes me really love Ulmo even more. Yeah, I've kind of come Ulmo. to switch my favorite I, I, over the time I, of the podcast. I've come to switch my favorite Valar from, from Alley to, to Ulmo. Ulmo. Yeah, really. Yeah, I mean, I've always loved Ale, and I do love his creation of the dwarves and how he handles that. His his yeah, repentance yeah. and the way he just, you know, shows humility and accepts all of that. I thought I think that's brilliant. But as we delved into some of the stuff from history of Middle Earth, especially the statute of Finway and Muriel, yeah, I found Ulmo's arguments so much more compelling than Ale's. Ale is Ale is usually kind of on that. Ali's wrong Almost in a lot of those arguments. Exactly, exactly. And, it's and Ulmo, like, Ilmo, and Ulmo sort of ends up being uh, right. right a lot of the time. Yeah. I, I've always been a big fan of Ulmo just because uh, I don't know. I, just, I like. I always like the water guy. Yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> and I always thought, that, and I like Ulmo because of the role he plays with Tour in that story, yes, and you know and how much I love thing. that whole story. Yeah. That but, exactly. Um, yeah. So I just. Well, that's uh, where that line was from. That's he's he's yeah. telling Tour that himself. Right. Um, but anyway, good good stuff there, and yeah, uh, yeah I well, think uh, Ulmo's climbing the charts. <laughs> yeah, well, and you know, I I think it's interesting because um, you talk about this role that Ulmo plays, and it, how, it's how it's sort of a, a unique role that we we're, we're pretty sure that it's a role that he was given by Iluvatar. Yeah, that well, that that, that makes, quote from the Unfinished Tales really does make that clear. makes it really clear. Yeah, I mean, that makes me wonder, you know, how much. The Valar are being negligent here. I mean, we we kind of give the Valar a hard time, you know, for for ignoring Middle Earth and so forth. But it could be that their role is to start leaving Arda to the children of Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, now that the Noldor have gone back, men are uh, now awakening. Uh, maybe their role is to sort of step back a little bit and start leaving Arda in the hands of children uh, the, of the children. The children, right? Um, yeah, not, not in the hands of children, no. <laughs> As a father of two, I know that's never a good idea. No, no. But maybe it's thing. just – and but maybe that is sort of their role to step back a little bit and it's Ulmo's role to continue to sort of intervene a little bit and keep yeah. an eye on things. I, I don't know. It seems it's, it's that way. pure speculation. Well, but, sure. Uh, but it just – it kind of makes me wonder. Yeah. You know, I mean, you're right because when we see them being negligent to use, you know, for lack of a better word, uh, earlier on – um, it does seem like it's an error, you know, and it seems like it's yeah. in um, it's letting the pendulum swing the other way after they realize the error of their way, right? And kind of dragging the ills over there. But this does seem a little different, and I think it has to do with men. You know, we we talk about um, 
the the role that men play. And in fact, there's a um, a passage in chapter one that that kind of speaks to this. If I can if I can find it. Oh, I, um, I know the one you're talking about. Yeah. There we go. So he's talking about the gifts that he's going to Louvatar himself is talking about what mm-hmm. he's going to do. He's going to give them a new gift. And he willed that the hearts of men should seek beyond the world and should find no rest therein. But they should have a virtue to shape their life amid the powers and chances of the world beyond the music of the Ainur, which is as fate to all things else. Mm-hmm. And of their operation, everything should be in form and deed completed and the world fulfilled unto the last and smallest. Given that, it seems like they know they need to back off because Mm -hmm. they're the ones who are going to determine where the world goes now. Men, you mean they. Men, Men, men. men. yeah, Yeah. sorry, you're right. My my, my (laughs) pronoun must match the subject. No, I I know Um, what you meant, yeah. Yeah, the men are going to be shaping things. Yeah. And they're not going to shape things very well at first, but it's it's their job. They're the ones. It's their operation. I mean, that's their destiny is to do that. Yeah, so I think uh, uh, that's yeah. Well, and that's I mean that kind of goes back to what I was saying in in the mailbag segment. You know, we talked about um, about Maya's question. You know, sort of this progression to more and more power to men. Uh, Mm -hmm. We see that in in the legendarium, and uh, oh, definitely. You know, um, I'll probably bring that back in a little later too. But yeah, I I think you're I think you're exactly right. I think that's exactly why they're doing it here. Yeah, it does seem it's like it's much more intentional and Mm -hmm. and and correct. You know, yeah. Whereas with the elves, maybe it wasn't so correct. Right. Um, because at that point, they were still supposed to be shaping the world itself in preparation right. for the coming of the children. For the coming of the children. Yeah. So, And now we have this change in the measurement of time. I mean, all that for one mm-hmm. paragraph. But, you know, we get the change in the measurement of time. We go from what we talk. <laughs> This is the Prancing Pony podcast, <laughs> after all. <laughs> Woo! 14 minutes a page. Um, <laughs> the years of the sun versus the years of the trees. We talked about this a, an episode or two ago um, about the timeline. I guess this was actually uh, two episodes ago with the Sindar where we talked about that 9.82 years of mm-hmm. the sun that a year of the tree was equivalent to. So these are much faster. And it seems like everything else goes faster because of it. Uh, yeah. You get the changing and aging of all things hastened exceedingly. Mm-hmm. So... You know, the Eldar increased um, the breadth of growth and mortality, even death. Yeah, yeah. I mean, exactly. Yeah, I mean, uh, yeah, it's um, I, I love that this is referred to as a second spring. And mm-hmm. so we're reminded of sort of how it's it's oh. such a blessed it's it's a blessed time um, because we haven't seen the that. First since spring. You know, You're right. Right. The first spring was the time of the lamps way back when. Um, and that was, you know, when Arda was still. Perfect. Perfect. Right. Um, Unmarred. That and, was before it was already right, marred. Right. Wow. And so here is a second spring that happens in Arda Mard. So, you know, I, I, I think there's a little bit of spabimi here. Oh, yeah, um, certainly. In terms of sort of, you know, a, a time of, of of blessedness and peace has come out of Morgoth's destruction of the trees. That's true. The trees aren't um, destroyed. There's no sun and moon, no sun and moon. And right. we don't get this change in Middle Earth. You're right. We, right. And we don't get light. Everywhere mm. in Arda, which that's we have true. now, that's true, and that's what allows Eleanor. Yeah, and that's what allows everything to grow. But wow. again, with that comes an acceleration of time. Yeah, um, yeah. you know, an acceleration of aging, and so uh, because while this is this, still Arda Mard, this st- this is still Arda Mard. So you know, maybe maybe there's got to be a price, and yeah. so um, while this changing and this growth is happening, 
these things die quickly. Yeah. Um, and so that's that's where that mortality comes in. So, I mean, this is really uh, this is an earth that's becoming, uh, you know, mortal. It's becoming a, yeah. a mortal place. It's 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 becoming more like the earth that we know. That's true, know? which is also a fallen. I mean, again, tying it back yeah. almost to the question that we were asked from by Maya, uh, you know, in, in that tradition, we the reason that things die and the reason that this world is not perfect and there are things like, you know, poisonous snakes and. You know, well, in Australia, there's like 18,000 different kinds of animals that'll kill you um, <laughs> is because the world is a fallen place. Right. What? The world right. is not like it was supposed to be in the first spring, um, you know, when, when the world was perfect. So, you know, now it's fallen and therefore heavy with the breath of mortality. The aging of things is hastened exceedingly. Right. Very interesting. Right. That's an a, yeah. excellent point. Really good stuff. And, and the earth is becoming mortal. You're absolutely right. Well, into this mortal earth comes the men. And I think you've got Mm -hmm. this uh, next little paragraph, right? Yeah. I'll start at the, the right after that break there. At the first rising of the sun, the younger children of Iluvatar awoke in the land of Hildorian in the eastward regions of Middle Earth. But the first sun arose in the west, and the opening eyes of men were turned towards it. And their feet, as they wandered over the earth, for the most part, strayed that way. Hmm. The Atani, they were named by the Eldar the second people. But they called them also Hildor, the followers, and many, and many other names, Apanonar, the afterborn, Angwar, the sickly, and Firimar. <laughs> I resent that one a little bit. Seriously. Uh, and Firimar, the mortals. And they named them the usurpers, the strangers, and the inscrutable, the self-cursed, the heavy-handed, the night-fearers, the children of the sun. <laughs> they couldn't just call yeah. them Steve. <laughs> <laughs> I started out trying to read that. I one. didn't know I, they were called Dennis. I didn't know they were called Dennis. Well, you didn't bother um, to ask, did you? <laughs> 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 it only, took, only took, what, 40 oh, minutes for you to sneak man. in that Python reference. Um, yeah. Um, wow. We need to chat start, with the elves about their... Yeah, uh, ta- remember we talked about their lack of tact with the names they give the dwarves. The stunted here, people. Here, here we go. Yeah, and this is uh, not much better. The no, sickly. the sickly, the usurpers, the strangers, <laughs> the self, the heavy-handed, the heavy-handed. Oh man, Children of the Sun's not bad. I, I'm fine. You know, with isn't that, that interesting? It's kind of like one of these things is not like the others, and Children yeah. of the Sun yeah. is that, isn't it? Yeah. It's yeah. like, you're horrible, you're evil, you're ugly, you're deformed, you're blah, blah, it blah, makes me, children of the sun. <laughs> it makes me wonder if children of the sun is somehow a backhanded compliment. I, I, I think it is, I think it is because we It could be because the that, elves don't really like the sun. That, I mean, they no, don't. I mean, they, they're not orcs, obviously, but well, they, no, no. You know, they're people of the stars. They're not really people of the sun. And, exactly. You know, well, this I think that's most, ti- most closely yeah. tied to the usurpers because in their mind, oh, they yeah. know that the, the rising of the sun means their, their eventual waning. Yeah. So this is yeah, like, you're kind of our enemy. You're the yeah. children of the sun, which makes you kind of anti-us. You are Unfriends. the harbinger of our doom. Unfriends, as uh, yeah. I think they're called by some elves later on, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, oh, Some of the green elves, maybe, in Osirian, who, who, so. yeah. who basically say, hey, man, these guys are coming in and they're hunting our animals and they're chopping our That's trees right. and right. we're going to be unfriends. That's right. Tolkien and his unfriends. We yeah, got, they, got, they unfriended them. On they Facebook. unfriended them. <laughs> um, yeah, boy. But, you know, I caught something in here, and I think actually you mentioned it earlier. The um, Firimar. Remember oh, when we talked yeah. about Muriel and how she was renamed 
ethereal she that right. died. Yeah. That root, F-I-R. And uh -huh. here we see it again, and it means the mortals, those mm -hmm. that die. Yep. Very interesting. Yeah. So that those two names are related. Yeah. Yeah. And clearly. I think you, you said uh, you looked it up in fear means something like uh, exhale or expire. Uh, expire. Right. E expire. Not like a gallon of milk, but like uh, to right. exhale, you know, <laughs> right, if, right, right. if inspiration is to bring in is air. Is to breathe in. Expire. Yeah. Is to breathe out. <sighs> expire. Yeah. So. Yeah. I'll do that right into the microphone. <sighs> <laughs> Very nice. Very yeah. nice. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so definitely that. But that is the same. That's the root. And um, that, yeah. in fact, I remember Furial was um, was both she that died and she that sighed, because when oh, she yeah. did, when she gave up her life, she simply exhaled and was done. And so that exhalation is a sigh. That yeah, that, that's a sigh. That's yeah, the the one that it's your last sigh. <laughs> right, right, right. Your last sigh. Boy, very cool. But well, goodness. you you had something about this sunrise in the west, which I you know we talked about a little bit with uh, yeah with the sun and moon and sort of Isn't the changing interesting? Path, the sun but, arose in the west. What a yeah. weird wacky thing to see, but but yeah, I think when they first saw that, that's there's always this thing. You know, we talked a little bit about uh, the compass points of doom, and I think they'll come up again. This is the this is always the good direction. West, west. yeah, west yeah. is always good. So they see the sun arise in the west, but what's cool is they only saw that happen one time. But they, for some reason, that's the direction they're heading. Yeah. Always. Even though after that, the sun rises in the east. Yeah. So uh, That's interesting. Yeah. 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 Well, I shouldn't say one that's, time. We don't know how many times the sun well, that's rose true. in the west, yeah, do we, before, um, before they changed before the Before they courses. changed it, yeah. But but even after it changed. Certainly a short they, time. They Certainly still, less than one generation, I would, one would imagine. I would imagine so, yeah. So, Yeah. So yeah, men sort of were sort of born to seek this. They they were right. born. They looked west and they sort of seek that light and they yeah. just follow it even when it stops rising in the in the in the west. Yeah, that's really cool. I mean, it's kind of like a you know. I mean, I don't know. You could think it stands for enlightenment, or you could think it stands for you know spirituality. You know, sure, whatever. But it, it's definitely you application, know, says, not not uh, not allegory. <laughs> right, exactly. But it's it's clear that, you know, Tolkien is saying that, that men just sort of have this yearning this uh, yeah. that's sort of born into us. For something, you know, beyond. Something, um, be yeah, exactly. Something beyond our our uh, our worldly experience. Yeah, and it's part of our wiring, part of who we are, just as, mm -hmm. as part of our nature. And, of course, we know that nature, in terms of that, in, in that context, is huge to Tolkien. That, yeah. you know, we always need to act in accordance with our nature. Right. Yeah. Um, but boy, those names. <laughs> <laughs> oh, goodness. Now, um, interesting. I wonder if Tolkien had changed his cosmology. You know, we talked a little bit about this last time about what, you know, how he was going to change it. Um, he wanted to change it to make it more accurate, to make it, you know, mm -hmm. consistent with what it really is. But if he did right. that, then the Earth actually revolving around the sun and everything. Yeah. Well, yeah, or at least always rising in the east and preceding the trees. At some point, he had it preceding the trees, if I remember right, correctly. Right, right. Yeah. And in that situation, of course, men could no longer awake with the first rising of the sun. But in that right. story, he had a uh, he had the idea that Morgoth would darken the world with clouds. There would mm -hmm. be a great there would be great floods, and that men would awake on an island amid the floods. And thus, when the sun broke through the clouds, they welcomed the sun. So it was still, oh wow, uh, this idea that they would kind of love the sun and they were always going to be the children of the sun even if even if the, the sun had been around even if this even if they weren't 
uh, born with born the at sun. the same time right. as the right. sun, they would have been uh, they, they would have sort of recognized the sun as the springer of light. Exactly, to, and as this, this time of saves them from the in this from case, the, the rain. floods. Yeah, yeah. Huh, that's really that's yeah. really it was just a little that, interesting thing that I remember. Was that in uh, was that in Morgoth's ring? Yeah. Yeah, it was. Okay. I didn't catch that. I'll have to go back and look at that one. Yeah, it's good stuff. Um, it, it was in that – remember how we decided not to go too far in depth to the alternate cosmology because it was really kind of just unpleasant? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Boy. And, yeah. And yes, Dark it is. in many ways. Um, yeah. Uh, it was in that section. So we can okay. always take I'm, a look. I'm, I, might, I might have skimmed over that. And to our listeners who are familiar cool. with it, they'll they'll take a look, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, so I'm going to go ahead and take um, a little bit later on in that paragraph. We're going to start with two Hildorian. Uh, okay. I'm not going to finish the paragraph, but I want to get to some stuff in here. Two Hildorian, there came no Vala to guide men or to summon them to dwell in Valinor. And men have feared the Valar rather than loved them and have not understood the purposes of the powers, being at variance with them and at strife with the world. Ulmo nonetheless took thought for them, aiding the counsel and will of Manway, and his messages came often to them by stream and flood. But they have not skill in such matters, and still less had they in those days, before they had mingled with the elves. Therefore they loved the waters, and their hearts were stirred, but they understood not the messages. Hmm. And I thought that was interesting. You know, we talked a little bit about the their decision not to summon them, you know, the negligence. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But it does appear here that, you know, Ulmo is doing the counsel and will of, of Manway in this case. He's not yet rebelling uh, against Manway by helping men, but he's not able to help them enough. He tells them, but they can't understand him. So they're bringing, so they are bringing a message to them. Yeah, some sort of message. But messages sort of, came, but yeah. they didn't have the skill to, they can't, to hear they it. They can't understand it. Yeah. yeah. But they did at least, again, this is kind of showing their nature. You know, we talked about the walking to the West. Uh, they still loved the waters. Their hearts were stirred. They knew yeah. in their hearts that something was going on. They something was calling understand. to them. They just yeah. couldn't understand what it was. Exactly. Exactly. Hmm. But it's interesting Boy, isn't, they fear. Isn't that, I mean, isn't that Boy, indicative of the, isn't it? <laughs> the human experience? Hugely <laughs> indicative. I mean, <laughs> man, uh, we feel the call, but we don't understand it. And, you know, we may spend our entire lives trying to figure out mm-hmm. you know, what that means for us. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, wow, yeah, and of course this I, also ties into the fact that they just don't—they're not going to intervene as much with men. Yeah, I've—I've I've wondered. Uh, I've kind of gone back and forth on this, and I, I think you're right. I think it is largely a, a desire not to intervene too much. Mm-hmm. I, I sometimes wonder if the Valar feel like they made a little bit of a mistake with the elves. Yeah, um, yeah, and um, or or. Yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, I don't know how much of this is just sort of like uh, hindsight, like, oh, we really shouldn't do that again. Um, <laughs> well, they had a third of their kids run away. <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> you know. Or if there was just something about the fact that, you know, men just couldn't go to the Undying Lands. But yeah. that, does, that doesn't seem right because the Undying Lands are not the Undying Lands because – there's nothing special about the Undying Lands. They're the Undying Lands because the but immortals the un- live there. Right, so. but, but not just the elves' immortals but the, the Valar. I think – But the actual yeah, Valar, I yeah. I think there is something to be said for that. We'll probably touch on that later, but I get this Probably when, I get probably this when we get to the Akalabeth. That, we'll, yeah, we'll, that's what yeah. I'm thinking. But I get this feeling that mortals who would go there would would kind of burn out faster. Um, that they would – you know, I mean, sure, what a way to go. But uh, that there would be such an intensity that their nature was not intended to – to experience. Mm-hmm. Um, where have I 
Where have I heard this idea? Maybe you and I have talked about We've this talked idea about before, it, I think, or, is, or is it in the text somewhere? I, I don't think it is directly in the text. I mean, I think there's some hints in the letters. Maybe so, um, yeah. I think there's something in the letters because somebody talks about, you know, would Frodo and Sam have lived People forever? ask what happened to Frodo if Frodo and Sam. Right. Yeah, exactly. And yeah. there is something in the letters, and I'll have to pull up the actual text, and we will when we get to this topic, which will probably come mm-hmm. up in the account of Beth. But, uh, yeah, there's this notion, there's this sense that because it's not in their nature to be immortal, they will not be immortal. And that being mortal in a land filled with the immortals uh, would only serve to bring you to the end of your mortality all that much sooner. It would just wear you out. It's it's just too the, the like, bright the lights too bright. Yeah, the too bright too bright of a flame really. Yeah. yeah. It really is. Yeah. I mean that's that you know again that's kind of a conclusion, a logical conclusion one draws from various statements, but it's not explicitly mm-hmm. said. Right. But it's um, interesting though. But yeah, I don't think summoning them would, to come to Valinor to Valinor would have been the right idea at all. No. Um for lots of reasons. I mean, we talked about this most notably, if nothing else, just the idea that men were really supposed to be um, right. sort of sort of kind of rule their own destiny, rule yeah. their own fate a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully some D20s. <laughs> Natural <laughs> 20. <laughs> yes, success. Critical hit. Critical hit. <laughs> oh, oh, man. man. We are geeks. How um, many of our listeners do we alienate with that one? Probably not that none. many, actually. <laughs> I'm thinking very few. <laughs> Probably um, not that many. Role-playing uh-huh. games, folks. D&D. Mm-hmm. The elves yeah. and, the, and the halflings, because for some reason they probably couldn't call them hobbits. Um, but boy, I think you're right. they sure had hairy feet and they were good burglars. So <laughs> Yes, they were. Yes, they were. <laughs> Again, you know, we, oh, we talked in, uh, in our interview episode uh, recently with uh, Drs. Femi and Higgins. We talked about how Tolkien shaped the uh, fantasy and sci-fi worlds with mm-hmm. language creation. Yeah. Uh, well, he also shaped the role-playing game. The role-playing games, yeah, Hobbits. Um, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, he had such impact on so many things. But well, even things like the plural of dwarf. Yeah. I mean, that, you're right. before Tolkien, the plural of dwarf was dwarfs. Dwarfs. If you look at, if you look at Grimm's yeah. fairy tales or even Walt Disney, it's Absolutely. Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. Dwarfs. And, Nobody calls uh, them and, dwarfs now. Right. No, everybody dwarves. says dwarves, if, especially in a fantasy setting. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm sure that's what it is in D&D and ev- probably oh, yeah, every role-playing yeah. game I've ever played. Agreed. Which is a lot. <laughs> <laughs> which is a lot. Uh, no comment there. No comment. <laughs> oh, oh, man. man. Um, so okay. what about this love of water? Yeah. Did we talk I mean, about that one? We did talk about it a little bit. Yeah. Just that, you know, we, we talk about the elves' love of water. And I think, you know, let's contrast this with the dwarves' hatred of water, fear of water. Mm-hmm. Both the both the elves and men are natural children of Iluvatar. They were the intended, mm-hmm. chosen, created children of Iluvatar, but the dwarves were not. They were the adopted children of Iluvatar, willingly, lovingly, and and all of that. But they were not originally intended to be. Right. So it's not surprising that those who were made by Iluvatar. Had this, have this love, this in yearning for the water, for the water. This, yeah. this this affinity for the water. Yeah, yeah, agreed. Just another similarity between elves and men. We'll get to more of those. Um, yeah, but anyway. So then they meet the, the dark elves. We're not going to read that, but they meet the uh, some of the Avari, um, 
and are you know become their friends. So they learn probably a little bit of language. They mm-hmm. uh, learn a lot of things from them about how to survive and how to live. And yeah, um, yeah. But, but because those are the only ones they they've met, they don't know of the Valar except as a rumor, and that's right. That's kind of important, um, right? You know, these are they say dark elves, but let's remember these are just they're dark because they haven't gone to the light. That doesn't mean they're evil. Right. Yes. So let's back off of our usual role playing. <laughs> right, this isn't Drist Durden or <laughs> right, right, right. Uh, he wasn't yeah. evil, right? Drist wasn't evil. I can't remember. But I can't remember. Maybe <laughs> I, think, I don't know. Um, <laughs> I've just but, gone uh, way off track. Yeah. Um, but yeah, yeah, exactly. These aren't the the evil dark elves that we see in a lot of modern fantasy. They're just dark because they haven't seen the light. So right. when we hear about Men becoming disciples of dark elves don't get the wrong impression. Yeah, I they're guess not becoming is... dark disciples. Right. right, right. Although they do that too. Oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> because <laughs> they, they to listen to Morgoth, Morgoth right? To them, which I think we're going to get to in a minute. But sure. um, but not not here. They, no, these aren't no. the ones that do that. Just to clarify that. But you have the next paragraph, right? I do. Yeah. So uh, oh, we're back at Morgoth here. We are. He always turns up. He always turns up like a bad penny. <laughs> <laughs> Morgoth had then not long come back into Middle-earth, and his power went not far abroad, and was moreover checked by the sudden coming of great light. There was little peril in the lands and the hills, and there new things devised long ages before in the thought of Yavanna, and sown as seed in the dark, came at last to their budding in their bloom. Hmm. West, north, and south, the children of men spread and wandered, and their joy was the joy of the morning before the dew is dry. When every leaf is green. Man, that is a beautiful, that's that last beautiful. phrase, isn't that gorgeous? Yeah, I love that. That's, the joy that's of the morning before the dew is dry. That is such a beautiful time. Yeah. That, yeah. that early morning. Oh. It's that, just that, that first awakening. Yeah. For everything is fresh. The, the whole day is in front of you. Oh, anything is possible. Absolutely. Limitless. Yeah. But I have to say, the first thing that hit me when I read this was the compass points of doom that we just talked about. Well, there's yeah, no, that makes sense. You left the east wind to me, but I'll not speak of the east wind. <laughs> right, Here exactly. Here we go, west, yeah. north, and south, you know? You've got this idea that men, I mean, men must have, well, I, I think they probably started somewhere in the east. Oh, yeah, in they, my, they had west, to north, start, and south, yeah. Um, which means, you know, if you think of the compass points of doom, you know, men are just sort of, they're they're going up. They started in a lower place than than where mm-hmm. they're going to. They're, That's they're, true. Uh, they're sort of growing, progressing, learning. Um, That's really cool. That is. I I think uh, the the other thing I noticed is, um, you know, I'm just, you know, me and I, I'm a fan of Yvonne and, you know, we yeah. talked about some of the, you know, some of the plants that she devised a long time ago, they're, they're finally able to grow. And, you know, there, there must've been a lot of plants. I know nothing about plants, even though I'm a Yvonne <laughs> fan. You're not a horticulturist. Um, I'm not a horticulturalist. Horticulturist. Horticulturalist. Horticulturist. You're definitely not that either. <laughs> no. <laughs> but, uh. Yeah, I mean, there's all these. I'm sure there's there's loads of plants that just need lots of sunlight, and they just couldn't right. grow before now. Right. Um, and now they can now that there's a sun. And um, yeah, before and it that's was just cool, like what mosses and stuff like that. And now yeah, it's, yeah. You know, full night board. blooming flowers and things like that. But now you know the the sun is out. The earth is kind of safe for living things again. You know, Morgoth is sort of Morgoth is contained a little bit. Yeah, he really is, check. isn't it? This is check. he's in check. Yeah. yeah. I mean, he's still a threat. And he's still strong, but. Yeah. At this point, he's still very much gathering his strength to himself. Uh, and then, you know, he's afraid of the sun. Let's not forget. Yeah. He's, he's so afraid of it that 
you know, he raises up the peaks of Thangoro of, of Thangorodrim and, mm-hmm. you know, the great reek that comes out from All them these and the fumes, smokes yeah, and the, these smokes. Just trying to cover the sun. Yeah. He hates it. But he's but his growth is is slowed. And that's exactly I mean, that was yeah. we talked about that. That's one of the reasons that the Valar created the sun. That's what they wanted. Yeah, yeah they wanted it to, to slow him down, to put him in check, like you said. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But, so you've uh, got the next, yeah, got the next I was paragraph. Say, unfortunely, that, a, that happiness is short. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All good things must come to an end. Uh, we get the ticking clock here. Um, yep. and, and, you know, we've talked about that ticking clock a lot, but here's, here's the next little section. But the dawn is brief, and the day full often belies its promise. And now the time drew on to the great wars of the powers of the north, when Noldor and Sindar and men strove against the hosts of Morgoth Baugler, and went down in ruin. To this end, the cunning lies of Morgoth that he sowed of old, and sowed ever anew among his foes, and the curse that came of the slaying at Alqualande, and the oath of Feanor, were ever at work. Only a part is here told of the deeds of those days, and most is said of the Noldor and the Silmarils, and the mortals that became entangled in their fate. I'll, I'll stop it there and let you take the rest later, but... There's a lot here, really. Entangled. That's that's a strong word. I, I, I like that word. Entangled in their fate. Um, yeah. The first thing we see is that I want, Mor- Go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I just wanted to make a quick note about this name, Bauglier. I don't know oh, if we've seen yeah. this before or if we've seen we it. Yeah, it doesn't come up a lot, but it, it is one of Morgoth's uh, names or epithets that comes up a couple of times. And I, yeah. I had to look it up. I just now looked it up. It's uh, It means the constrainer. Mm-hmm. One who constrains. Man. So Yeah. Kind of like a anyway. like the warden of a prison. Yeah, yeah. Now, the first thing I see here is the cunning lies, and it made me jump back to, to chapter seven. Uh, this is when he's making the um, the Noldor kind of get into conflict with each other. There's mm-hmm. this wonderful line that we spent some time on then, and I'll just go back to the line. But he that sows lies in the end shall not lack right. of a harvest, and soon he may rest from toil indeed while others reap and sow in his stead. And sure enough, that's what we get here. That's exactly what's happening, that's yeah. exactly what we get. But but there are three elements here, three things that are ever at work. And it's really important, I think, to weigh these in the balance. And because you're, we're going to see that two of these things are Feanor's own fault. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, we get Morgoth's lies are at work. But also at work is the curse because of the kinslaying and mm-hmm. the oath. Mm-hmm. That oath is is going to drive so much of this story going forward. Um, you know, Morgoth's lies have a lot to do with it. We know that. And, you know, we we don't... Oh, Morgoth has a lot to do with Feanor's fall, but Feanor still sure. chose it. Right? We talked sure. about this before. He's still responsible. He can't say the devil made me do it and, you know, right. just throw your hands up and say you're innocent. But boy... You can certainly say the lies certainly, you know, were a catalyst. A yes, catalyst. I would not even catalyst. say the only catalyst. Oh, no, no. His pride but, and, and greed right, and all absolutely. those things were... Yeah. But, uh, you know, the the lies are just part of it. Like you said, you know, yeah. Feanor had to make the decision to do the things that he did. And then even after the kinslaying, there was still an opportunity for him exactly. to repent, to turn back, to go back to Valinor and say... Well, actually, no, not for him, remember... Though that's true, him that's and true. his well, sons were forever banished at that point. Not well, not to go back. I, I shouldn't say to go back and and live the life. No, he you're had, right. But, but they could have repented to, and and to acted repent in accordance. To, you're right. Yes, right. Not not to physically go back. You're right. No, you're right. But uh, but to say no, uh, we've made a horrible mistake, and right. 
please and just then do what they could to deal with this. Right. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah, they could have. But they, they didn't. They, they, no, they, they doubled down. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> because that's what he does. Right. But, um, but yeah, I just thought that was really key. That that was that was so important that I wanted to spend a little you know time on those those mm-hmm. three elements that come into play through the rest of this text uh, that were mm-hmm. ever at work: the lies of Morgoth, the curse from the kinsling, and the oath of Fanor. But now you get, and, and that's a good point because I think, uh, yeah. Well, before before we move right. on to that, I right. just yeah, think yeah. it's it's interesting because when you look at the oath as that that missed opportunity for repentance, right? The oath is a big deal. It's I mean, the, deal. The, the, the oath is not just the footnote in his oh, fall. No. I mean, the no. the oath is a major part of his fall, and uh, and it's it's clearly uh, you know at least equal in these three elements that you've identified. Yeah, it seems like. Yeah. So no, anyway, no, no. I, that's interesting. I never thought of it that before. I never really picked up on these three elements. And I, I don't think it ever really struck me just the, uh, the you know, the impact mm-hmm. of the oath, you know, the no, significance of the oath. And we'll see it more in next chapter. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah, um, true. But yeah, so I, and, and what I what the other thing, of course, is that he gives us a little bit of that uh, framework. Only a part is here told of the deeds of those days. So we're we're reminded once again, this is a history that's limited. And yeah. in this case, it's limited to primarily the Noldor and the Silmarils and those mortals that became entangled in their fate. Right. So, you know, we don't. That's why, for example, this isn't a book about the history of the um, the Green Elves of Osirian. Right. That's true. It would be a pretty it's boring not, story. Not, yeah. Uh, or the Vanyar. It or, probably would have been a pretty oh, boring goodness. story. Would have been a very, just, so we were listening to Manway again today. <laughs> <laughs> Omg! Did you hear what Vanway said? <laughs> and then we sang. And then we sang the van to, to Varda. And we, yeah. And we checked out what Manway was wearing. <laughs> it, was, it was blue again. <laughs> it was blue again. <laughs> oh, man. Uh, the poor what not van to wear. What not? <laughs> yeah. It's a Nick edition. Nobody, nobody should ever wear red on, on Nick Yeah. Just clashes oh, with the blue. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, so right. why don't you go ahead and tell us a little bit about the nature of elves before I say something I'll regret. <laughs> right. So this <laughs> it's not is too late. The, the rest of that paragraph. Yes. <laughs> in, in those days, elves and men were of like stature and strength of body. But the elves had greater wisdom and skill and beauty. And those who had dwelt in Valinor and looked upon the powers as much surpassed the dark elves in these things as they in turn surpassed the people of mortal race. Hmm. Only in the realm of Doriath, whose queen Melian was of the kindred of Valar, did the Sindar come near to match the Kalaquendi of the Blessed Realm. Okay, that's worth so, exploring a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. Um, we've talked a little bit about uh, the difference between Kalaquendi and Moraquendi. Um Wow. You know, but to see that, it visualized like that, that the Kalaquendi yeah, are that's so kind of, much they're more. As, as high above the Avari or the Moraquendi, as they with the exception of the men. Sindar, as yeah, as the Moraquendi <sighs> are above men. Wow. Um, that's huge. So when you you know, compare a mortal like let's say a Boromir, who's pretty much pure mortal, mm-hmm. to uh to you know, like a Galadriel, there's there's a huge difference oh, there, and of course yeah. we see it. Huge, huge. I mean, that's and we a, see it. Mm, I mean, even comparing to to, uh, to Aragorn. Well, yeah, yeah. Who would actually yeah. have some some elvish in him? But I'm thinking yeah. to like a Legolas, you know, a more a Moraquendi. Oh, that's true. Yeah, um, yeah. Comparing him to him, and then comparing him to you know a step yeah. above that with with Galadriel. Yeah. 
boy. That's pretty cool. It is. But notice what it is that, that makes them each of those steps different. It's the light. Mm-hmm. It's light. And, you know, we, we've talked about this before about light being such a central theme in uh, in the works here. Um, it's just, you know, another point that we see. What's the difference? It's just the light. Yeah. Because there's not much in the way of, of bodily difference, right? I mean, we just saw that, you know, the Moroquindi and Calaquindi certainly are identical in terms of their, right. their bodies. Um, both, you know, the beauty and all of that. Right. Um, but then we talked also but, about the fact that the elves and men are really similar. Yeah. Um, at least yeah. in, Tol- it, yeah, go ahead. You had a, cause you had well, a quote from one of the letters, right? Yeah. Tol- well, Tolkien himself actually once uh, said, and we may have brought this one up before. I, I can't recall, but in letter. I think we did because it probably led to some discussion of Toriel and Keeley. <laughs> probably. Yeah. <laughs> or as I refer to her, she who shall not be named. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm sure we. <laughs> I'm sure we found a way to work that one in. So now that I've but, spoiled yeah. that, what was the yeah. actual quote? <laughs> but it was uh, Tolkien's letter uh, 153 um, where he wrote that elves and men are evidently in biological terms one race or they could not breed and produce fertile offspring. That is so, such a key point, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Again, I mean, going back to that thing about children of Iluvatar, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Elves and men are uh, not only more alike than elves and dwarves or men and dwarves, but they are, right. they are one race. They're, we might say they're one species, you know, yeah. they're just different, uh, sort of different genuses, perhaps. different. Yeah. Or, or, or different no, wait, levels. Genuses uh, above species. Genuses above species. So, isn't yeah. It? Yeah. I don't remember what's below uh, species, different, I don't know, subspecies, I guess, but, uh, cultivars or subspecies or something. I don't know, but the different breeds maybe, I don't know, but they're just, there's, um, you know, there's different levels of, uh, sort of illumination there, but they are biologically one race. And, yeah. uh, and we kind of get that in this passage where it talks about um, the the strength, the stature and strength of body, uh, but the elves had greater wisdom and skill right. and beauty, and then that and that has a lot to do with the light. Yeah, and it everything does. to do with the light, I would say. But stature and strength of body were the same, uh, or of like stature. Uh, mm-hmm. We see that that just like the elves, their bodies are of the stuff of the earth. Um, you know, yeah. they were they could both be slain. Um, right. You know, dwarves could too, in all fairness, but their their bodies, we, we don't know really the the manufacture, shall we say, of their bodies in comparison. Of because bodies, yeah. They're not made by a Luvatar. Right. And I think that really is what it boils down to. That's, that's why, to bring it all back around to she who shall not be named, that's why this idea <laughs> of a romance between two species that are entirely different, that could never... Yeah. Um, that they're not biologically compatible was so troubling to so many people. Um, yeah, you know, exactly. It, it, and yeah, and as we'll talk about, because I'm sure I'll bring this back uh, again at the end when we talk about um, some of the some of the further differences between elves and men at sure. the end of the chapter. It, well, in like two paragraphs. And I was going to say uh, we're, we're almost yeah. at the end of the chapter. Yeah, but it's um, yeah. There's just there's a. There's a significance to the romances between elves and men. It's not just Very, a, yeah, and you yeah. will point those out. That's true. I, yeah, I've I've looked at your notes on that. That <laughs> that's yeah, um, yeah. So the it's connections. not it's not yeah. It's it's not just this idea of you know creating star-crossed lovers or something like that. You know, from no, different no, no, no. from different places, different races. It's it's. Elves and men coming together is, is very significant, and we'll talk about that in a bit. It's very significant, which is why it's also very rare. Right. Um, exactly. But, but they. But it's it's possible 
because they're both children of Iluvatar. You know, we mm-hmm. talked about uh, there was a question a couple episodes back about uh, Ainu are reproducing. And we talked oh, yeah. about it in the context that it wasn't so much that uh, Melian was able to reproduce. It's that Thingol, being a child of Iluvatar and intended to reproduce, could reproduce even though he was married right. to a Maya. Right. It's not that the Maya could reproduce. Because right. what she what she produced was still was still a child of Iluvatar. Was still a child of Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. And that's key because they could not she couldn't reproduce a, a type of Ainu because she could not reproduce something that was of Iluvatar's thought. Right. Yeah. So it's all about that biological compatibility. Fascinating yeah. stuff. Yeah. Really. Um, and I, I love it. Really beautiful, uh, especially that whole idea about the light uh, elevating them. Yeah. But. Um, but now we're going to get really cool. to the nature of men. So I'm going to go ahead and take this next paragraph. Um, well, except I'll, I'll probably stop partway through because there's a, there's a couple different things that we want to talk about in here, but we'll start. Immortal were the elves, and their wisdom waxed from age to age, and no sickness nor pestilence brought death to them. Their bodies indeed were of the stuff of earth and could be destroyed. And in those days, they were more like to the bodies of men since they had not so long been inhabited by the fire of their spirit, which consumes them from within in the courses of time. And that's where I want to stop first, because then we'll get to men. So this is still a little bit of the elves. Yeah. But it's about their death, and it's about, you know, what could what could kill them. Fascinating stuff. This, what do you make of not so long been inhabited by the fire of their spirit, and that because of that, they were more like to the bodies of men? What do you get well, from that? Um, you know, I've actually got a little bit on this in my, uh, in my, uh, my stuff that I did that I put together about the waning of the elves. Oh, okay. Okay. Um, I think it, it really is tied in with that. There's this idea that the elves bodies over time are literally consumed by their spirits. Um, like and this is actually described in Morgoth's ring. Oh yeah. Um, right. It is. And, and as this happens, um, their, their bodies become, uh, less and less physical. And they, their bodies change. Um, in fact, since we're talking about it now, I'll actually just pull this up. Uh, sure. We've got um, – so this actually comes from uh, Laws and Customs Among the Eldar. Okay. Um, so Tolkien says, As the weight of the years, with all their changes of desire and thought, gathers upon the spirit of the Eldar, so do the impulses and moods of their bodies change. Hmm. This the Eldar mean when they speak of their spirits consuming them. And they say that ere Arda ends, all the Eldalier on earth will have become as spirits invisible to mortal eyes. Wow. Unless they will to be seen by some among men into whose minds they may enter directly. Wow. Um, yeah. And then um, just a, a couple pages later, he, he kind of elaborates on this a little bit where he says, as ages passed, the dominance of their Fayar, so remember that's their soul, right. ever increased, consuming their bodies, as has been noted. The end of this process is their fading, as men have called it, for the body becomes at last, as it were, a mere memory held by the Fea. Wow. So they, because they remember, they're immortal. Pure they're immortal spirit. within Arna. They become pure spirit as time goes on. By, by the end of, uh, certainly by the end by of the Arda, end of Arda, they would be, they would yeah. be beings of pure spirit, probably even by, you know, our time, right. um, you know, the they're, That's a fascinating way to also make sure spirit. that, yeah, it's, it's a great way for us to tie the mythology to our own world today and say, well, yeah. no wonder we don't And explain see why there's no elves left, right, why there's exactly. no Avari running around. Yeah, exactly. Except for those of us whose minds they may enter directly. Right. I, I meant to tell you about that. <laughs> I've been having this conversation. <laughs> have, you been, have you been a little touched by, uh, by the fairy world? 
<laughs> yeah, so I I think oh, no. that's that's exactly no. what he's talking about here. They this is still early. This is still in right. the use of elves, and right. so their bodies are still they're still corporeal in yeah. a way. They're still they're still more, more corporeal than more than corporeal. They would be later certainly. Yeah, uh, yeah, and that kind of maybe explains their ability to survive the Helcaraxa as well. You know, we talked yeah. about that a couple chapters back and how they um, uh, or yeah, I guess I guess it was just actually last chapter and how mm-hmm. they. Um, you know, making it across what, yeah. what hardihood and woe. Because they were so you know. strong. They were in the, right. the sort they were in of the in prime. Their youth, in their right. prime. That's yeah. what it was, the prime. Mm. Good stuff. Yeah. So now let's take a look at men. We've looked at elves and then we'll finish this paragraph. But men were more frail, more easily slain by weapon or mischance, and less easily healed, subject to sickness and many ills, and they grew old and died. What may befall their spirits after death, the elves know not. Some say, yeah, here we go. We get another some say, right? Another some say, yeah. Some say that they too go to the halls of Mandos, but their place of waiting there is not that of the elves. And Mandos under Iluvatar alone, save Manway, knows whither they go after the time of recollection in those silent halls beside the outer sea. None have ever come back from the mansions of the dead, save only Baron, son of Barahir, whose hand had touched a Silmaril. But he never spoke afterward to mortal men. The fate of men after death, maybe, is not in the hands of the Valar, nor was all foretold in the music of the Ainur. Hmm. Some great stuff. And it, it yeah. kind of brings me back to our episode, oh goodness, a while ago now, episode 10, I think it was. Episode on 10, yeah. On death. On death. That was a lot of fun to research. You know, we pulled a lot of stuff from history of Middle Earth, and, and I'm going to do that again here because in the earliest versions of the Silmarillion, uh, or in one of the earlier versions, he initially stated that men did not go to the halls of Mandos, uh, but also that they were okay. not, but that they were also not born again, like the rehousing of the elves. He changed it to what we see here that they went to the halls, but not the same places where the elves went. Um, they were never reborn on Earth, but of course, then he, you know, this this uh, exception that proves the rule mm-hmm. regarding Baron. Right. But in the earliest versions, and this was interesting, in the earliest versions in the Book of Lost Tales, um, men would go to the halls of Mando's wife. Now, it wasn't, um, oh, who's his wife now? Vire. Vire, that's right. Then it was a woman named Fui. I'm sorry. I. <laughs> She probably liked tuna sandwiches. She probably probably ate some bad tuna. (laughs) Um, And she would judge these men and send them to one of three fates, dwelling with the gods in Valinor, which sure sounds like heaven to me, taken by Melkor to Angband, which let's just remember that's the hells of iron. (laughs) Yeah. And that Um, certainly sounds like the opposite of heaven. Yeah. Or they'd be put on a ship that wanders until the end. Very (laughs) purgatorial. Um Christopher Tolkien comments that this is, and I've got a quote from this, a rare and very suggestive glimpse of the mythic conception in its earliest phase. For here, ideas that are drawn from Christian theology are explicitly present. Uh, two things to, to comment on that. One, I would say Catholic theology. Uh, as a Protestant, I have purgatory whatever. Um, you know, And I don't mean that disrespectfully. I just mean that's certainly not a concept that, that uh, I'm aware of. But Mm-hmm. Uh, it is a, a, certainly a Catholic concept of, of purgatory. Um, but it, it's also interesting because Tolkien later on would point out that he does not want to have any explicitly Christian uh, things in his right. book. That's one of his main points is I don't right. want that in here. 
um, which I think it should is, be, yeah, it's excellent. He wants it to be compatible without right. actually having elements of it. It needs to be compatible because, of course, that's for his own internal use, if nothing else. Um, right. But he didn't want it to be, you know, a preachy thing that only applied mm-hmm. to people who had that worldview. And we've talked about this before, how applicable this is to every worldview, really. Yeah, um, yeah. Yeah. Anyway, but by the time he began The Lord of the Rings uh, back in 1937, he had reached this final position. And that's why this is the canonical one. This is the the final version. Men are mortal. They have to die. They're not bound to the world. Only God knows their fate after death. Mm-hmm. You know, possibly Mandos and Manway, maybe, you know, that only they know whither they go, that the yeah. elves know not. Um, but I love this idea that they're not, it's not even in the hands of the Valar, maybe. Yeah. The fate of men after death, that is. Yeah, because, uh, you know, again, the Valar, because uh, because elves and men are both the children of Iluvatar. The, the Valar don't completely understand us, and so they don't really know what Iluvatar has But they has understand planned. the elves a little better in that regard. Because the I elves, think so, probably because because of the way that they they both, I yeah. think they're probably more like the elves. Because well, they're, they very, both they're have, bound to the earth. They're, they're bound to the earth. Their life is um, the life of Arda. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right, and they both have immortality within Arda. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, I mean, the elves have to go through the whole, you know, debodying, rebodying right, process. Right, right. But, um, yeah, I mean, the, well, that's the Valar— That's just like changing clothes for the Valar. <laughs> oh, right, exactly. <laughs> what raiment shall I pick the today? Raiment, yeah. yeah. Um, you know, the Valar— blue. Always, always blue. Always <laughs> blue. I'm going to see, the, the, like, the far side comic now, Manway's Closet. Manway's closet, and it's just a bunch it's of blue robes. all blue robes. shirts and blue jackets and blue robes and blue ties and blue jeans. No. Uh, blue, oh. <laughs> uh, blue oh, hats. man. And, and, like, he listens to the Moody Blues. And... Yeah, there you go. <laughs> and Madonna's True Blue album. Oh. Well, no. Manway's got a better taste than that. <laughs> You said it, not me. Of course I did. I'll 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 take the heat for that. <laughs> oh goodness, Man. we are going to be in trouble. It's fun stuff, though. That's um, what makes it fun. It really is. But I just that that little piece of um, of uh, stuff from the Book of Lost Tales, I thought was was just kind of interesting to see yeah. once again how the story develops in his mind. The development, yeah. You know, because back then that's when elves were reincarnated. You know, mm-hmm. I love how mm-hmm. he changed everything over time, refining it, making the story work together. Yeah. This version makes so much more sense. And I and it keeps the mystery about it. It does. And it yeah. and it removes it. And again, it removes it from that that Catholic viewpoint. Exactly. That of, of course, the Catholic viewpoint inspired it because that's sure. what Tolkien believed. Right. But but by removing it from that, he makes it more universal less exclusive, uh, or universally right. ex- applicable and less exclusive. Exactly. And, and that's exactly what he was trying to do. And, yeah. you know, it's it's a good reminder. Uh, and I, I'm glad that, that you brought it up because we have talked quite a bit about theology in this episode uh, sure. just because, uh, you know, the subject matter and the well, question yeah. we had. Creation um, of men. That's going to be yeah. a relevant right. subject. <laughs> right. Exactly. <laughs> and we and we intentionally pulled in a theological question from Barlow's bag. But, sure. Um, but it's important to note that um, that that you know Tolkien intentionally wrote and rewrote his mythology specifically to um, to take out the overt theological right. references yeah, and just really leave that apl- uh, that applicability that um, that you or I or anybody who comes to this text can apply something that they're familiar with. Exactly. Avoid the allegory. Keep out the the references that are going to yep. date it and make it uh, fixed. I mean, yeah. that's what he thought was the fatal flaw to um, 
to the existing mythologies of of, uh, of England uh, was the inclusion right. of like the Arthurian Christian, legend, right? The, yeah, he, the, yeah. The explicit some... inclusion of Christianity was in his mind a fatal flaw that it yeah. needed to include those truths, but not those those details, those specific details like exactly. the Holy Grail and things like that. Exactly. Yeah. So interesting. Well, now we get to the fading of the elves. Yeah. If you yep. want to take that last so, paragraph, and then we'll I'm, discuss that. Yeah, I'm gonna. I'm actually gonna take the first half, and then we'll okay. talk a little bit about fading, and then we'll we'll take the la- last. Oh paragraph. yeah, because that last uh, that last. Yeah, couple, I, um, I gotta I gotta I gotta linger on that last bit. Man, so. and I couldn't have taken that from you. I could have couldn't have pried that. No, no, I was cold. We, dead we hands. agreed on this a long time ago. I was getting this paragraph. We agreed. Yeah. I'm gonna put agreed in air quotes because the, I think the, 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 <laughs> I the catch of you deciding to, to co-host was based on you getting to say anything about air until. That is, ever. True. that is true. Not, not ever. I'll I'm let teasing. you talk a little bit when we come to that chapter. <laughs> I'm glad to know that. Go ahead. All right. In after days, when, because of the triumph of Morgoth, elves and men became estranged, as he most wished, those of the elven race that lived still in Middle-earth waned and faded, and men usurped the sunlight. Hmm. Then the Quendi wandered in the lonely places of the great lands and the isles, and took to the moonlight and the starlight, and to the woods and caves, becoming as shadows and memories, hmm. save those who ever and anon set sail into the west and vanished from Middle-earth. So I, I wanted to stop there because I want to talk about this waning and fading. And we've already yeah. hinted at, we, we've already talked about exactly what it is. We've talked about this idea that um, the the elves that stay in Middle-earth as they as they stay, their bodies do fade, yeah. literally fade. Mm-hmm. Um, and I just wanted, I, I, this has always been a concept that's fascinated me. And so I, I wanted to spend a little time just kind of talking about it. Um, I think it's interesting that you pointed out that uh, even though this paragraph talks about elves fading, waning and fading later, uh, you pointed out the fact that this is really beginning now yeah. because the yeah. sun has risen. And and the sun is sort of the first harbinger of their waning. That's why the in elves fact, don't. That's why they. That's why they call them the children of the sun the and, and of the, the usurpers. Right. And here right. we get it. Men usurp. And here we get the, the word sunlight. usurp. Right. Clearly exactly. ties those two together. Yeah, that's a good point. Boy, I didn't even catch that. Yeah. And even if you go back to chapter three, when mm-hmm. the, fir- the when the elves first awoke in Kuivianen, uh, right. or before they awoke, actually, uh, Yavanna had suggested, you know, maybe putting some light out there to prepare for the elves coming. Ah, uh, yes. And that was when Mando said, it is doomed that the firstborn shall come in the darkness and shall look first upon the stars. And then he said, great light shall be for their waning. Yep. So... That great light is here. I mean, you know, the sun and moon is here, and and that tells me that this is the, the first step in the process of their waning. Now they've had a long yeah. run. It's been about oh, 50, they've had a, they've years had a good long. They've point. had a very good long run. Yeah, <laughs> but it is um, they are moving on to that. They're really moving on to the last act for them, which is yeah. kind of sad when you think about it that well, way. Well, you know, it's interesting now that I do think about that, and I'm comparing the timelines. I mean, from the beginning, wow. We'll have to look at the actual timeline from when the elves awoke. But it's not as though they're they only got a little bit of time on the scene. I th- that's true. No, they got you know tens and thousands of tens of thousands of years. years. Yeah. Versus you know the first, second, and third age. Yeah. Um, which well, is the, about the first age nine... measuring the light of the sun, measuring the years of the sun. Right. I'll have to get right. those out. We'll we'll look into that. That's an interesting question because 
you know, I this think is you're really looking like at the about, last 10% of their lifespan, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, you're looking at about, I think there's about 500 years in the first stage of after the sun rises, I think. Right. And then, you know, what, about a little over 3,000 years in the second and third ages. So, yeah, about 7,000 years plus, um, you know, whatever's happened since. Right. Well, yeah, and that could be incredible. And that could time. be, who knows, yeah. But that's why they're invisible now. Right. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I, uh, one of the, one of the things I thought of when my I, mind. <laughs> they talk to you, Alan. Do they talk to you? Do the elves talk to you? My lawyers okay. advise me not to answer that question. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, uh, this this waning process has already started. And I, yeah. I got to yeah. do this before I move on. I got to bring in. Um, we've we've had a few quotes from our friend Kosh from Babylon 5. before. <laughs> yes. There's, there's one of his that I love. It's so Kosh. He says, the avalanche has started. It is too late for the pebbles to vote. <laughs> and. I don't know. That's what's the going on here. The pebbles are the elves. The, the avalanche pebbles, of the, the men has the begun. Yeah, I thought about exactly. that same thing. Actually, I was. I just. I couldn't help but remember that we'd been talking about Kosh, and he hadn't shown up in the last few episodes. So no, we didn't get uh, to bring him up in the last. Few episodes. I, yeah, you know, it, it's the avalanche has started. Yeah, yeah. You, you have to say it all. You know, mystically uh, all, all and breathy. Yeah, yeah. Right. The avalanche has started. <laughs> It is too late for the pebbles to vote. That's beautiful. Sorry. That was actually pretty bad. Um, um, it's been long enough since I've watched Babylon 5 that it sounded perfect to me. So. <laughs> I'll put it up there with your Ungoliant with, with voice. All those, oh, no, no, no. That may go with my Gollum voice where it's like mediocre and acceptable in a, in, if you're drunk or something. But uh, yeah. <laughs> please, no, the Ungoliant does, does warrant its own yeah. tear. That was a good one. Yeah. Does. Of course, so, she's never uh, going to speak again, which is exactly how my voices go. <laughs> the, the ones <laughs> I never get sure. to use. I'm sure she'll make an appearance when oh, we at least expect her again. Of course she will. <clears throat> she better. Does Rosie so get anyway. any lines at her wedding with Sam? Maybe I could read them in her voice. <laughs> oh, that's creepy, man. That's just <laughs> that's just messed up. Because you know he's having nightmares for the rest of his life anyway. <laughs> He's having giant spider nightmares. <laughs> oh, man. That's going to be like four years from now when we get to the end of The Return of the King. But uh, yeah. I'll see if I can remember that. Yeah. We'll, we'll make a note and, and save it on whatever there futuristic storage system we my, have by my then. Holo, my holodisc. <laughs> right? Oh, man. All right. So anyway, so Sorry. so the elves are waning. They're already waning. They and are. Um, we've talked our, about our the audience that, is waning at this point. But anyway, <laughs> yeah, and we've <sighs> talked about the fact that uh, that men are going to have dominion over Arda. And right. and Tolkien himself said, I won't spend too much time on this quote. But again, in Morgoth's ring, um, Tolkien said that uh, the waning of the elvish Roar must therefore be part of the history of Arda as envisaged by Eru hmm. and the mode in which the elves were to make way for the dominion of men. Yeah, so, uh, makes sense. so yeah, exactly. So, um, and he even goes on to say something about how, uh, I won't read the whole thing, but basically the idea that, uh, that men, that this is actually a, a, a sad thing to elves because of they course. say that men are, uh, largely governed as they are by the evil of Melkor have less and less love for Arda as itself. Um, oh yeah, and are largely busy in destroying it in the attempt to dominate it. And so, Ouch. yeah, Ouch. I know. Right? <laughs> Again, hurts, like, but the elvish lack of fact. No, he's not wrong. And 
And so, you know, well, that reminds me, though, that reminds me, you know, that quote I went back from from chapter one Mm -hmm. uh, about the gift and and the whole idea about fate and the music. But right after that, um, you know, Iluvatar knew that they would not use their gifts well. And he said, and Mm -hmm. I love this line because this brings us all back, as we often do, to Spabimi. These two in their time shall find that all that they do redounds at the end only to Mm -hmm. the glory of my work. Mm-hmm. But but you're right. You know, a little bit of that point that Tolkien made in the Athrobath shows up there when it, when the text says that the elves believe that men are often a grief to Manway, who knows most of the mind of Iluvatar. Mm-hmm. For it seems to the elves that men resemble Melkor most of all the Ainur, mm-hmm. although mm-hmm. he has ever feared and hated them, even those that served him. So, mm-hmm. yeah, good good tie-in, I, though. Bringing that in from the Athrobath really, uh, really yeah. makes that fit better. Yeah. And I... And I think that it's just um, it, it is because of this uh, this this way that men are easily swayed by Melkor um, mm-hmm. that um, that I, I think we get a little bit of hope for this in sort of uh, even though the elves are gone, let's say right. um, there remains a little bit of a strain of elves among men, doesn't well, there? Well, sure, yeah, and that kind of brings us to the uh, to the last couple lines, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. And 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 Tolkien himself said that uh, you know the the elder children, though they're the, the elder. This is in one of his letters. He says the elder children doomed to fade before the followers, men, right, and to live ultimately only by the thin line of their blood that was mingled with that of men, among whom it was the only real claim to novi- nobility. Hmm. And so even though the elves are doomed to fade and leave Arda to men who are probably just going to muck it up because we're so easily swayed by Melkor, <laughs> yep. the leaders of men will be those who have a strain of this elvish blood, hmm. which is also going to be a strain of – there's going to be a tiny strain of Ainurin blood from Melian. You're right. You're right. And so it's it's this elvish blood that's going to ennoble men and ennoble those men who are going to be the ones to step up and lead men through the rest of Arda. Wow. And that's just a beautiful concept to me. It that, really you know, is. This, it's, it's those who have, you know, again, there's this link, this physical link back to fairy, yeah. to, to Valinor, to the elves. And once again, it's, um, it's that teamwork thing. You know, yeah. it's, it's, once again, it's the teamwork. all of it's it's the Ainurin, the elvish and the manish. Yeah. Yeah. combined and the strengths of all of those yeah because each has their strength right wow. and so exactly and so and so i think that this is a deliberate plan uh tolkien himself even said it was part of a divine did, plan i remember reading something um, about that in one of the other in one of the other letters and so when we talk about baron and luthien Tuor and idril aragorn and arwen you know the right. the the elf the only man times couples, that we had only times well, there was one yeah. other that was uh, who was it that we hear about? Um, um, there was you know uh, Andreth and um, well, but they Finrod's never brother. They never um, actually were married, right? I think it was the of? woman. The woman was the and 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 Imrahil is supposed to have descended I, from her. Um, oh, um, yeah, you know where uh, I'm going, and I can't remember her name. Is it? Oh my and goodness! She like went uh, off into the sea or something like that. There's there's a river. There's a river that's named for her, right? Right. Ah, my goodness! Why? <laughs> Somebody's gonna write gonna, in and say you our guys listeners are just, gonna just they're good. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, we're tired. It's okay. late, and we didn't take notes on that. I <laughs> we mean, didn't. I'm sorry. We didn't plan to talk about this. So. No. No. I'll I'll see if I can't figure something out while you're touching a little bit more on on these three. I think that's important. All right. 
Yeah. So, yeah, I just I, I just think it's important that we see that these are the only times that this actually happens, that a romance actually happens and there are children. And it's it's part of the elves purpose. It's it's the fulfillment of the elves purpose on Arda, which is to ennoble men for their destiny of, of ruling Arda. And that, again, takes us back to, again, not to bash on Keely and Tauriel, but it's just <laughs> there's there's a difference there. It's it. The idea of putting these, you know, Baron and Luthien together was not just, you know, oh, it's a great love story. It is, but it's also part of a, of this huge plan for the ennoblement of the human race. And I think that's a, a beautiful thing. And, and I would, I don't know, a, a major part of the legendarium. Yeah. Nimrodel. Nimrodel. Thank you. Nimrodel. My goodness. How could I not remember that? Yeah. Uh, and we found that out in Unfinished Tales uh, in which that was, was revealed. So we do have that. Um, but that's... Um, it wasn't Nimrodel herself. It was one of her, one of her maidens or something. Um, I don't know. <laughs> Drawing I a can't remember. Blank. And but of course she was Sylvan, not uh, not Noldoran. So that's right. And not even Sindarin for that matter. I can't remember now. I don't, I don't know. I'm yeah. I'm drawing a complete blank on it. Nimrodel. She was one of the companions of Nimrodel, if I remember correctly, and um, Mithrilus. Let me look Maybe. that up. Myth, I think uh, <laughs> yeah. our, our listeners are like, come on, you people. All right, All right. I'm going to go ahead. While you're looking that up, I'm going to go save face by reading the rest of this paragraph. Please do. I'll find this. <laughs> but in the dawn of years, elves and men were allies and held themselves akin. And there were some among men that learned the wisdom of the Eldar and became great and valiant among the captains of the Noldor. And in the glory and beauty of the elves... And in their fate, full share had the offspring of Elf and Mortal, Eärendil, and Elwing, and Elrond, their child. Wow. So a little bit of a spoiler on Elrond. Just background. a little bit. That. Spoiler alert. But yeah, exactly. But uh, you you had something here about the the nature of that alliance between elves and men, right? Yeah. Um, I mean. The alliance itself. I mean, I, I love that they held themselves akin. I think that was the first thing that uh, that grabbed my mind. It was not so much just the nature of the alliance, but the fact that they were they were kin. Uh, but we've mm. talked about that already. The fact that they are a biological race, yeah, a species. Were, you know, so they must have sort of um, sensed that um, in some yeah, kind of way that kinship. Mm -hmm. um, here we go. I finally found what I was looking for. This was. Oh, good. Um, <laughs> I know, boy. So this is in unfinished tales. Uh, this is in the section on um, the history of Galadriel and Celeborn, uh, and it looks like this was written in like around 72, so it was one of the last things he wrote, talking about okay. the elvish strain in men uh, and talking about how the princely house of Dol Amroth had this special elvish strain. Um, Legolas mention of Nimrodel shows there was an ancient elvish port near Dol Amroth and a small settlement of sylvan elves there from Lorien. The legend of the prince's line, and so it's a legend even in the writing, so it may not be true. The mm, legend was okay. that one of their earliest fathers had wedded an elf maiden. In some versions, it was indeed said to have been Nimrodel herself, but that's not probable. Uh, and in other tales, and more probably, it was one of Nimrodel's companions. And then that's the tradition we get later. The later version appears, and in this, uh, in this tradition, um, Galador was the son of Imrazor, the Numenorian. And the okay. elven lady Mithrilus. She was one of the companions of Nimrodel, among many of the elves that fled to the coast 
uh, in the year 1980 of the Third Age when evil arose in Moria. Um, okay. In this tale, Imrazor harbored her and took her to wife. And then when she bore him a son and a daughter, she slipped away by night and he saw her no more. Wow. Um, and uh, she was, of course, lesser elven in the sense that she was sylvan and right. not uh, Sindar and certainly not, uh, you know, high elf. Right, um, right. But that that's how the lords of Dol Amroth, that's why they were beardless. <laughs> oh, that's right. That's right. So, you know. Yeah. Fascinating. But, boy, sometimes so I wonder... we just chase the rabbit down the rabbit hole, don't we? <laughs> we do sometimes. <laughs> but, uh, Ladies yeah. and gentlemen, so... now you know we really do this show live. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Now you know that That's we true. don't come into this with like, you know, 8,000 pages of notes knowing exactly yeah. what we're going to say. No, no, we we prepare, but man, we... Yeah, we wing it. We we, we, we wing it sometimes. <laughs> we wing it a lot. So, but yeah, so so we, uh, so they, they definitely sense that there was some kinship there. And yeah. Yeah. Uh, even here at the end of this, at this passage, this last passage, we talk about those who learned the wisdom of the Eldar became great and valiant. You know, there's there's yeah. already this sense of even this early, uh, just by oh, yeah. talking to the Eldar, just by just by learning from them, men mm-hmm. became ennobled. Well, we'll see that with the elf friends, you know, as we move further mm-hmm. into the history of yeah. men, uh, we'll see just how important it is. The more elf like a man is, the better he is, you know, all yeah. the way up to um, to to Tuor. Um, yeah, that's you know, probably true. Probably being the, the most um, you know, the strongest example of that. Yeah. Um, which, of course, leads to the line of Eärendil. Of Eärendil and Elwing <laughs> and Elrond, their child. And Elrond, yeah. yeah. Isn't that beautiful? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It so oh, yeah, well. it is. Oh. And, uh, yeah, this, uh, I mean, yeah, you know, this is my favorite family. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, and it's been wrapped really, up in the story from the very beginning. It, and it really has been wrapped up Hasn't since it? the very beginning. And so even though, you know, we talk about the elves waning, um, we talk about, you know, all the horrible things that have happened. There's, there's hope on the horizon. Men are already becoming a little bit more elf-like. Yeah. And, um, and that's that essential optimism that we talk about so often yeah. with Tolkien's world. Which leads eventually to the catastrophe. Yeah. Well, yeah. that, believe it or not, wraps it up for another episode of the Prancing Pony podcast. We thank you more so this time than ever before, perhaps, <laughs> for, for listening to us. Uh, and we really appreciate you coming along. Yeah, and join us again next time when we finally catch up again with our old friend Feanor as he sets foot hey, buddy. back in Middle Earth. <laughs> Did you miss us? He probably didn't. Um, when he sets foot back on the shores of Middle Earth in Chapter 13 of The Return of the Noldor. Of The Return of the Noldor and the cleanup of the beach barbecue. Um, <laughs> and just like with the uh, flight of the Noldor, Sean and I have decided to split that chapter up into two episodes because there's just so much going on there. That's right. That's right. So in our next episode, we're actually going to be covering up to the chapter break on page 113 of our edition. So this is the passage that ends in, thus great riches came to him. So that's where we're going to stop in our next episode. But of course, don't be afraid to read ahead. That's right. And as always, if you need cheap paperbacks to mark up, just use the links on our library page at theprancingponypodcast.com. We also have links to audiobooks and music CDs and some other cool stuff for your uh, Tolkien collection. That's right. And if you haven't done so already, please subscribe on iTunes or Google Play Music. We need your iTunes reviews, so please, 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 please. if you haven't. And we really, really appreciate your support. We're also on Stitcher and TuneIn. Uh-huh. And thanks to those of you who are visiting and commenting on social media. Big time Remember, this is, 
Yes, thank you. Remember, this is The Prancing Pony, and you can join the conversation in the common room on Facebook at The Prancing Pony Podcast or on Twitter at Prancing Pony Pod. And social media is a great place to share our podcast as well. So retweet us, share us, tell your friends. Maybe not about this episode. Just kidding. Uh, And one last thing, as always, don't forget to send your questions, comments, or your passive-aggressive names for the elves to the Prancing Pony Podcast at gmail.com. And we'll try to give them a little back. That's right. We'll try to get them into our next episode. Well, an hour 40 is still far too short a time to spend among such admirable listeners. But until next time. Farewell, friends.